Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Today's guest is Peter Cowan, founder and managing director of Sutton Capital Partners, a technology investment bank focused on SaaS and fintech. Co-founded one of the largest Southern Southern California tech conferences, the Recurring Revenue Conference. Previously co-founded three tech companies. He sold them all. He's an advisor. He's an angel investor. He's an LP in a bunch of different funds. And during his free time, he's a senior faculty advisor over at UCLA, overseeing the master's thesis program on entrepreneurship. Peter, excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here. Look forward to our conversation. This is going to be a great one. So this is a little bit different than we've done in the past because typically we have entrepreneurs and founders who are actually in the business today. And right now you are not running a specific SaaS or fintech business. You are advising, you are coaching, you are investing, you are helping in a bunch of different ways. So I'd love that, that the fact that you're on the show because now we can talk about a couple of different scenarios and take a lot of the learning that you've had over your career and what you're seeing companies and founders do really well and maybe maybe not do so well so we can avoid to make some make some mistakes. Here's where I would love to start. So I'd love to start kind of where do you begin when you get involved with a company, advising, helping, maybe your investor, maybe not. Are are you coming in at the the product market fit fit stage do, do the cust or do the founders really know that they want to scale know that they should scale know that they shouldn't scale like where where are you coming into companies right now so we come in at several different places and obviously product market fit is the holy grail and i think a lot of companies have stops and starts if you're fortunate enough to have true product market fit you know it's it's one of those wonderful things in life most companies i should say grow at a steady pace they may have some fits and starts and the like. We, we, are, we are involved with companies at a lot of different levels, only because we enjoy mentoring. We've got a whole network of talented people around. So we often talk with companies as they're starting. And, you know, what's interesting about SaaS companies is that they can be highly valued at relatively low revenue rates. So a company can actually have only 100 or 200,000 of annual revenue be doing things that are very exciting. Conversely, Companies can have many millions of revenue, but have some serious problems with them. So we like to be involved with a lot of companies. We, you know, like many, many entrepreneurs go narrow and deep. We're able to provide a perspective on how that fits compared to the dozens of companies we're involved with now and the hundreds we've had a chance to work with, invest, involve some of the ones we've started. And I think what, what we often do is kind of provide a broader perspective and somebody, often entrepreneurs are so afraid of failing, we often help them take more chances or put things in perspective that trying more things, even if some things don't work, is okay. So that, that, that's our range of things. And it's usually past an idea. It's usually they've got customers. It's analyzing what the customers do. And then some of them have been around for a long time. What amazes us is many companies often, you know, have been in business for many years and then they figure some things out. And so they, they grow they grow and have a burst. Maybe that's a temporary product market fit where they hit on things. But most SaaS companies are, are niches. And I think that's important to understand. Let's talk a little bit about that, that niche piece because I, I, what, I, what I've seen in my career is the definition of niche tends to change based on who you are and how you are actually looking at a specific part of the market. Do you have some examples that you can talk to around a specific niche versus something that's a little bit too wide from a company perspective? So, so there's two ways to look at this. The first way I'd say is there's, there's vertical solutions and SaaS solutions, I mean, and, and horizontal solutions. And so horizontal solutions are something like cybersecurity, uh, automated marketing. Niche solutions are something for freelancers, people who are, you know, in the real estate brokerage community. And it's often a, a, a one that has multiple capabilities that makes life easier for companies. And so they often integrate multiple departments to solve an issue or do multiple customer relation management integrated with other aspects, such as ongoing marketing, 
relations, follow-up, other sorts of components that go along with it, but are tailored to a specific group. And what we have seen over time is that broad-based solutions are becoming relatively less attractive. There are exceptions, but, but deep verticals are ones where once somebody uses it, they use it for so many key components, it's hard for them to leave it, which is why more and more investors and more and more companies are seeking that deeper, stickier solution, ideally that might have some onboarding and training so that once they use it, there's some pain to change. So that's interesting. So this podcast all around scale, obviously. And so let's talk a little bit about the companies that you've seen. They're, they're in this kind of vertically, they're, they're, they're going a little bit deeper. They now have this niche. What are you seeing? Like how niche do you have to get? At what, at what stage do you go, hey, I'm, I'm too broad to, to be able to, to kind of scale because I'm trying to boil the ocean or I'm trying to be all things to all people. Are you seeing companies who think that they kind of have product market fit and then all of a sudden, to your point, they temporarily do or they think they do. And then as they start to quote unquote scale, they realize that they don't and then they take a step back or is it some, some other form there? Well, I think there's a couple of, it's a, it's a provocative way for you to phrase it. I think there's a couple of things that go on. First of all, often a company comes and the premise is somebody has felt pain in the market. They presumably know that market. They come in and there's something not there. So somebody has, has for example, you know, been in the hospitality industry and they've managed this, a, a chain of hotels or they've been in apartment managements and they've managed this and they see some things that are lacking. They often then say, let me create a product for what frustrates me when I had that role. And often they understand what that niche is. Now, by the way, some niches are bigger than others. That's just the nature of things, right? I mean, as we've all discovered, you know, wealth managers, there's an awful lot of them, right? And, you know, brokers, there's a lot of them. Although with the recession, that may thin out a little bit. But, but the point is, there's still plenty of them. Others are, you know, you know, painters, artistic painters who, you know, who make $2 million a year, right? This is a smaller industry. So... There's a broad cat, there's a category to begin with. And then within that, there's what are their needs and how many of those needs are you solving? And so what I mean is there are certain products that are like finance reimbursement. And that, while it has value, and there's certainly companies that have made a lot, that often can apply to many industries. But if somebody is, has some specific areas with specific worlds, you know, certain legal kinds of software that's specific for litigators, you know, that has specific calendaring dates and works it out for what is the, the, the nuances of when to file because each state for each kind of law, that's powerful, right? And so once somebody starts to use that, that's specific, but there's plenty of litigation lawyers, for example. So there's a broad market there. Sure. What we're seeing, what I mean vertical is it, it, it takes a company and ideally multiple departments to coordinate that helps somebody do many things well or helps multiple departments coordinate better with information that's available, transparent, and, and able to, to be shared in real time and has an intuitive capability to scale. And, and that once somebody uses it, they can keep growing it. What's frustrating is some products are built and then they can't go beyond a certain size, right? That's the drawbacks there. Yeah. But you know, when somebody says I've come up with the all-time solution for cybersecurity, there's a bunch of products out there that provide a bunch of cyber cybersecurity solutions. You know, whether you're talking about, you know, the Palo Alto networks of the world or all that, where major companies use this. Somebody truly comes up with something that's better, earlier detection, detection once something's been penetrated. Those are massive opportunities and those are great, but they're obviously highly competitive. And those are areas that are kind of the holy grail if you really figure something out. But, but there's, awful, there's an awful lot of competition to get in there. So what we've seen for entrepreneurs is they build businesses up. And if they're great businesses and they grow from a couple of million of revenue to 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or $40 million, they're worth a lot of money if they steadily grow, have phenomenal retention and have a market that's steadily growing itself. Are you seeing, based on that, are you seeing these companies that are getting beyond the kind of the first couple of hundred thousand or the first few million into the double digits? Are you seeing them super niched and, and, and staying true and disciplined in that? Or 
do they get to a certain point or like, I, I guess, where in their point do they start to spread out outside of their initial kind of traction zone that they get to? Yeah. So, so I, this is the way I would frame it. And I think is that you go to a certain group, you, you think you have a problem, you go to a group of customers and you get them to trial it. And that's a, that's a real art in itself as to who gets to trial it, how engaged they are, how you make it so it's a two-way street, right? You typically give them a bargain, but you need to get their feedback. Right. So presumably you're working with a series of companies. They are trialing the product, giving you feedback. After that stage comes, it's a success when them and say, I want this. It's even better when they say, don't even think about taking this away from me. And then they start to pay for it. Then they start to use it. And the great thing about SaaS companies or cloud-based companies is not only the paying of it, but it's the usage. By whom, how frequently, and what it is. So we, we've seen certain products where it's not the time usage, it's the frequency of usage, and it's the usage of multiple modules. Yep. And what happens over time is it's not like, oh, here's, here's one audience, we're going to try another audience. It's often, here's one group that's using it, makes sense to try it with another group. Right. And yeah. so, you know, there was there was a you know a product we saw that that was great at credit fraud detection. It did very well with people looking for real estate. In other words, people looking to, to rent apartments worked exceptionally well. Well, after a while, they said, this is great. And they built up a very nice business. But one of the but one of the logical things is, couldn't this be done for banks or credit reports outside of apartments, outside of people seeking apartments. You know, there's a whole bunch of ways that people yeah. commit fraud by, by using dark web mimics of people's 1099s and, you know, how much income they make and what's on their bank statements and things like this. Sure. And it turns out it's a much bigger problem than people thought. So a lot of times people use it, but often they often have other customers that are using it and they start using the product Oh, that's an interesting niche. Let's go expand that. Yeah. What happens more often is somebody uses a product and they have more needs and you keep building products that are complementary to that. So that they're using more and more niches of what that product is. And, you know, it isn't uncommon as companies evolve, especially as businesses evolve, that more sophisticated products for different customers come into play. And, you know, marketing, marketing solutions have become so sophisticated that there's niches within niches yeah. of larger companies needing certain products, while smaller companies maybe need a whole comprehensive solution. And then how do you fit that yeah. product into legacy products without disrupting things, right? I mean, if somebody is using, you know, Google Office or, you know, or Microsoft Office, then it's hard for somebody to switch to something else. But if you can tie something that's better into that, that's great. Smaller companies might like to use the whole solution. And sure. I think that's how product lines evolve. And I think the, the long-winded way to say to your question is, what business are you in and what business are you not in? And well, I mean, that's, that's a tough one. Yeah, that's a tough one because it's the discipline to really be able to say, we can't be all things to all people. I mean, if you're in the SMB space versus the enterprise space, completely different types of solutions. And I know that's a very broad way to say it, but when you think about it, just the needs of a small business to your point might need an entire suite of products to enterprise solutions going to say, Hey, I need certain types of security. It's got to do this one tiny little thing and it's got to do it really well. And then you can expand from there. Are, are you seeing that? Is, is it, is it the founders themselves who are helping with this? Is it that they're trying to hire salespeople and marketing people, obviously the founders are coming in with domain expertise to say, I understand this problem or, you know, I have, I have a solution to this problem. But one of the things from a sales perspective of getting that initial traction is there's founder led sales. There's, should I hire a team? Do I do it the email? Should I do it during shows? Like what, what are you seeing from the companies that you're looking at as far as just being able to get to that traction? Well, I think there are certain products and pricing that define what business, how to go market to them and not. Obviously, if you're selling a $1,000 a year product, you can't have outbound salespeople making multiple calls. Right. Enterprise sales, by definition, requires a certain skill set of salespeople. 
And then often enterprise requires the ability to work with channel partners. I think the biggest thing that comes out of this is that as a, as a company or as an entrepreneur who sees a problem, you're obviously leading the way. The biggest thing that happens is understanding who your customer is. And what we see frequently is that, is that when the sale is made, it's understanding who's the decision maker or makers and why, and who has the most to gain. You know, we've seen a number of them where, especially enterprise sales, there's multiple constituents and you really need to understand and have the buy-in of different groups. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen that, that the whole, you know, COVID and, and uh, cybersecurity hacks and a range of things have somehow changed the power structure within different groups. And I think it's important to understand that. So as far as a founder leading a sales, the founder, I think, stays involved in the sales for a long time. And the, and the founder needs to be at the pulse of who's making the decision, what's going on with that product, what's going on with existing clients that, that helps. And then the big stages are learning to hire other people who can bring in leads, how you train them, how you measure them, who's a fit and who's not. Very hard. And, you know, it's far less than a 50% success rate, far less for people hiring their first salespeople for a multiple of reasons, from product to the entrepreneur explaining how to use this to some of the issues in, in, in the market itself that, that, that you're a startup. So finding the right people, finding the right solution often requires turnover. So not, not, you're really speaking my language about this uh, less than 50% success rate, because it's obviously what a, a lot of what I do. But talk to me a little bit more about of the ones that are successful. I mean, how, how are these founders transitioning into these new, these, this, this sales team, so to speak? I mean, you, you, you work your tail off to get product market fit, you define the problem, you have your messaging, like you, your product is starting to work. And the founder is involved in every single one of these sales initially, which makes sense because they're the domain expert. And at a certain point, there's just too much work to be done. The growth needs to happen in order that other people need to just be involved. So let's go build a sales team. Let's go hire one person, five people, whatever it is. What are you seeing from the ones that, that make it successful versus the ones that, that don't make it successful? Well, I think a big part of it is the DNA of the founder, right? I mean, certain founders are technical founders. Certain founders are more on the front end selling or and some really understand the user at a deep level. I think what happens is, does the founder have experience in managing a sales team? You know, I know in my first job I came out, I was a salesperson in a startup that I, I was the one that was, you know, one of the co-founders. And then I learned to be a manager and then I learned to be a manager across channel partners. And it wasn't, it, you know, while I had training at Hewlett Packard, it didn't prepare me for this. So, so what happened is I ended up, you know, was a, tri a trial by learning and hiring other salespeople and being in the trenches with them. I think the, the couple of basic things I think is when you hire, hire at least two people. There are many reasons for this. And of course, as is pointed out, the worst thing that happens is you hire two great salespeople, which is very unlikely. Right. But, but that's, that's a good that's problem a to have. Life is good. But you get such a comparison as to who works, who doesn't. There's a healthy tension, competitive tension that's there, that's, that's valuable. It accelerates your learning curve. And invariably, the truth is, when you go launch this, you probably haven't provided the best materials, the best layout, so much is in your head for helping those people succeed. And then I think the next thing is having advisors around you who are a lot better than you. And I, I do really believe that A people hire A people and B people hire C people. And so I think if you can really understand and push yourself to be the best and not be afraid to hire people better than you in certain areas, because by nature you can't be everything. And I would claim that Virtually every, in fact, every entrepreneur I've met has some glaring blind spots where you need to have other people help you. So it may not be, in, you know, you may be yeah. great at sales, maybe you're not great at sales management. Maybe you're great at sales and sales management, but maybe you're not great at marketing, right? right? And of course, operations and finance, usually those are other people anyway. And so I think what, the, what goes on here is you need to understand there's a learning curve with yourself. And that it may be that you might have hired the right people and you set them up in the wrong circumstances. 
And I think one of the things that comes about is sometimes people pay so much attention and if they grow fast, it's because one or two customers are growing fast, which is dangerous. And we have seen situations where a company has, a, has four or five customers and suddenly the, the one of those wants so much more resources. They're a big company and they promise massive amounts of revenue. You shift everything to manage that one company and it could often be a big brand, right? Yeah. That's enticing, it's exciting. It's often a very painful lesson. And there's discipline about what can happen with that. It can drag you off your main focus. That company can change their mind. You get distracted. Um, there's a real discipline to figuring out how to grow the business and not be carried away by the sentiment of one company, which is so often why some companies think they've got product market fit, but in fact, they've got one company that's, that could be their, their savior, but could likely also be dragged them to their grave. That is, well, first of all, you just gave me about 400 more questions. So let's, I, I, I want to dig into that last piece because it's, a, it's challenging to know if that customer is going to be like the company killer or the company exceller, right? Is that, that, that's a great sign that one of your customers is growing so, so fast that they're, that you're kind of hitching your wagon to their wheel type of thing. And as they grow fast, you can grow fast and you have more money and more resources, so on and so forth. But also it could be in the other way that you build towards their use case. And all of a sudden you're not building for everyone's use case. So you start to move away from that. How do you, is there a way that you figure that out? Like, how do you know what is the right decision to make? Well, like most decisions, there's more than yes, no. Okay. And I think like a lot of things, it's, you know, we've had situations where companies, you know, like Apple or Microsoft have come and said, we love this. We need this, this, and this, and then we'll pay this, that, and that. And I, you know, and then somebody goes, oh my God, I've got these amazing clients. Let's go do this. There really has to be a deep understanding. And then, and then on the other hand, you don't want to show you're so small and fragile to them. Right. That's an issue. But what we found is that there needs to be a higher degree of commitment from a major company. And we have seen situations where major companies know they've got clout, they push, and they may be doing this with two or three other companies that are like yours because they don't care. They just want the best result and they want to do it with as fewer resources on their side. So what we've seen is just a whole bunch of test points about their commitment, including dollars resources, people, and tests along the way. And I think sometimes things come out where it's just not a good business decision, but you want to have a lot of test points along the way. And I think some of that comes where really good entrepreneurs will always make the decision ultimately themselves, yeah. but they surround themselves with thoughtful advisors. I think one of the things that we've seen is thoughtful advisors are different than board members. Thoughtful advisors are really mentors. And it's often better if they're not on the board, especially when once you take investments, once you take investments from outside people, the board dynamics change and there's obligations you have, formalities, and there can often be conflicts. So what you'd like is ideally some person or a couple of people that you deeply trust who are not on the board of directors, who can, who can filter advice and, and brainstorm for you as you break down the situation. Because each of these large companies can make a big difference. Right? I mean, I mean, we've had a situation where a major a major company came and said, "We want your solution. It's going to require this, that, and that." And what ended up happening is the, the major major company, you know, Fortune Five, said, yeah. "We will do this. We will pay you for three years in advance. We will pay a discount because we know once you get this, that you will be able to attract capital." This is a big validation. And here's what we need by this, that, and that, right? And suddenly company has ample capital and the right sort of commitment from a company to do this. But I can't tell you that's more an exception than what happens yeah. when larger companies come in and they want to do things. And, and, and by the way, the other thing that can't be minimized, larger companies, depending on the level it's at, things can go and then change. We've had situations where somebody has truly been a champion. And then the next day they're either at a new company, they're fired, they're in a new department. 
So caveat emptor on the really big companies. And, and I think overall, the, the message out of this is, you know, be careful what you wish for. And sometimes the big company may not be the right fit for you at that stage. Right. No, I think that's really important. I mean, money, resources, tests along the way, overall, like how, how are they structuring their commitments? Because one person can leave. Priorities can shift year after year, and all of a sudden they defund that. How, how are they paying you? They're probably not going to give you all, all three years up front. Maybe they give it to you in chunks of 60 days or milestones or something like that. So it can, it can, it can, get, it can get a little bit different if you're, if you're in those types of situations. Because especially as an enterprise SaaS company, that's what you want. You want those big companies to say, yeah, here, I'll give you all this money. I'll validate it. We know what we're doing by saying yes to you. And you're going to get all this money. You're going to get all this notoriety. You're going to get VC funding, so on and so forth. So they're going to be able to push back. And you got to be able to have that discipline to know when it's a good bet or not. To your point, it's not just a black and white yes or no type of thing. Exactly. And I think that's a really big, big understanding of how big is their problem? How are you solving it? How are they doing it now? And, you know, you asked earlier about about founder-led sales. I think one of the things that happens is when you bring in new salespeople or a new sales manager or somebody to oversee it, the truth is that for that period of time, you've actually got to be more intimately involved than ever. It's a chance for you to learn more when you can watch others do what they're selling your product, how well you're able to explain to them what the value proposition is, how well they manage it and what they take back, which is why it's so helpful to have at least two people. But the other thing that comes out of this, which I have seen as a huge mistake, is people will come in, they'll have a couple of salespeople, then they'll bring in a sales manager. And you know, we're not big fans as entrepreneurs of people's resume. I mean, they're, and, and I think real red flag when they've only been with very big companies. But what we like is kind of the scrappier person who knows how to take it from a smaller to big, as opposed to very big to very large. They're very, very large. Right. And, and I think it's really important for you to watch what these people are doing. And it's those qualitative steps early in the process. But we saw a case where a company was doing pretty well. They were growing steady, had some attractive capital, not necessarily from the best partners, but they had enough capital. That's another discussion. And then, and then what happened is they bet that this, this new sales manager gave a forecast, had a, had a great resume, gave a forecast, and they kind of bet the company's future on it without the founder saying, I need to look at this for a while. I can't take this at face value. The, 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 um, the projections were not met. Company burned a lot of cash and had to go out of business. Okay? And it's, wow. a, it's a cautionary tale because it was a shame that, that that was the cause, right? There were a lot of things the company did well, had a good product, had some customers, but they burned a lot of money on building the next product while they were burning it, those sales weren't coming through and they ran out. And, you know, anytime yeah. there's a hiccup, like there is currently in today's economy, that's a real problem. And the margin for error today is narrower than ever as companies need to be leaner. So when, when you're talking about this sales manager hire, are you referring to prolong the decision to bring on a sales manager and stick with the founder being the quote unquote sales manager for a longer period of time? Or are you saying the founder needs to, it's okay to hire a sales manager early on, but the founder can't just bail out of sales. They can't just go, cool, I'm gonna go do something else. Well, early on is a, is a qualitative aspect. When a company is growing and it's suddenly gone from 1 million to 2 million, and then looks like it's on its way to 4 million. I mean, those are times when you might you know, be thinking about expanding the team and having other people, especially if your if sales is not your expertise or you see yeah. other areas. And I think what happened here was this is a company that was actually, you know, had grown from three to six million, was on its way to ten, raised a large amount of a relatively large amount of money, but burned it at a very quick rate because they saw the sales coming. The sales hit a little bit of hit hit a you know some delays. And there wasn't that margin and there was the assuredness by the CEO dropping out and not being as close to the sales opportunities and what was going on there, taking things a step away. And, and I'm saying that 
that there's a balance between letting somebody who's got experience running a sales department versus yourself and, and being able to stay close enough to watch the things to see if things are on track or not and giving yourself a buffer. There's always the, that's the balance, right? You're bringing yeah. in new people, you're expanding. There's a certain level you need to let go, but there's other things when immediately after the hire, you really need to track carefully if this is the right person. Right. And sales and sales managers, are, are, you know, a different breed. Would you, would you say when you look at kind of the, the types of companies that you help and the ones that have, have really kind of gotten over the hump, is there a stage at which you see the most success as far as founders bringing the sa a sales manager on as opposed to being, the, the, like in the early days, I always recommend hire some salespeople, but still the, the founder and CEO is the sales manager, quote unquote, for a little while until you can get some of that init initial process, things documented, that type of thing. But now you're starting to transition and hire that person. What what is the what are the characteristics of the company or the revenue or the product? Like what does it look like to go? You know what? I think it's time for me to hire a non-founder sales leader. Well, you know, SaaS revenue is one component, but I think a lot of it has to do with how many customers you have, the types of customers, how they need to be managed. And I think one of the things that's happened that's that's very profound, you know, it's happened the last few years, but it's happened on steroids, is this whole concept of customer success and retention. And I think one of the things that comes out of this is understanding that certain people are good at bringing in the business and others are better at managing it and upselling. And there's a balance between managing and being too aggressive on upselling, but understanding the metrics, the analytics, the data behind it as to when to approach the upsell and when not. So I think what's gone on is there's a lot more data to support going out, building businesses, increasing the retention rate, bringing newer products into customers, using that as a, as a background to systematically go out to get new customers. You know, and so, so there, is a, there is a question as to what the dollar amount is. You know, it strikes me that there's some balance, and I know you're looking for some numbers, but you know, typically you, you want some, you want people bringing in somewhere between 250,000 of new money versus 2 million yeah. beyond that. That's really, really good. It depends yeah. on what that is. And that's the rate you want to have. So if you've got a couple of customers and you're able to bring in, you know, a million dollars of new business a year, and that new business is companies that typically have revenue between 50 and 250,000, you know, again, it's hard to bring in clients when they're at a thousand, even 10,000, but, right. but some clients that are bigger require more time. Even, you know, 25,000 can be a good customer base, especially if you can build on it, depends on the product. And then from there, what you want to do is you want to, you know, once you get to have a couple of salespeople, it's not uncommon to bring in somebody because we're always the belief of scrappy that somebody's a salesman and a sales manager. Right. And so it's logical that you bring in salespeople and see who can grow into that role. I think it's a really important component where there's experience and there's talent. And we've seen it before where somebody's experience may be at early stage, but they can't grow with the company. And somebody has some other talents that enable them to grow. And it's not uncommon that the less experienced person starts to grow into this and they can take the reins. And so it's, it's optimal for smaller companies that people grow and the stars, the stars evolve. And it's often painful when people who were critical when the company started are not ready for the next stage. That makes a lot um, of sense. But, but, you know, hiring from the outside is a thoughtful, very, you know, it, it should be something that takes, that ideally takes time. And now that we're going through times that are more recessionary, there's more time to hire better people. More people are more available. And because many companies have valuations that will be below or, or what they were before, or, or talented people, stock options will not be valuable at all, or maybe discounted, it's a time to bring in new people with an opportunity if you can promise them something. Yeah. And so this is a good time to be doing that. And, and, you know, and I think the real thing is this is a time when great entrepreneurs really have to work hard because they have multiple roles. And one of the roles is finding talent now when it was so hard before, it should be easier, but you need to cultivate that. Right. 
No, it's one of the things that I talk with all my clients about. And it's funny because every great entrepreneur also must be a phenomenal recruiter. And every great sales manager or every sales leader needs to be a phenomenal recruiter. Like that is the job above everything else because without your people, it makes it really, really challenging. When you're, you're clearly touching on a specific type of profile of these earlier stage sales reps, the first, you know, one to maybe five, maybe even 10. Do you use or do you see companies use a framework or a scorecard or how, what is it that they are hiring to make sure that they don't make these mistakes? I know that you talked about big companies, right? If you sold $3 million at Salesforce, that does not mean that you're going to be able to sell $3 million at my tiny little company. And I think that's, that's or anything, right? But outside of the the big company, because I think that one, that one's, that, that one makes sense right away. What are the other things that you see companies either use or focus on as far as finding those 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 right people? Well, one thing that we have had success with is, you know, there's a certain value to understanding who your customer base is. So we often look for people that have what we what's an what's often an ideal one is a company like yours, a little further along, you know, still doing fine, not the major one. And, and then looking for their top salespeople, and especially one who might be younger and a little disgruntled. Bigger companies typically start to become more formalized. Young stars often get stymied in big companies. If you can promise a young star, and that often comes by, you know, using the, you know, you can start with LinkedIn and find out who some of the salespeople are at companies, yeah. using the pipeline, talking to other competitors and reaching out and poaching a competitor's top young salespeople. I think that's often been one thing that's worked well. You can often go into peripheral areas, right? If somebody is, for example, you know, selling to mechanical engineers at aerospace companies, you may find other products that those mechanical engineers at aerospace companies buy. I mean, obviously, hopefully software. Sure, sure. And I think that that's often helpful. And And then, of course, you know, not just the rule of three, but I'd say, you know, rule of 10, interview a whole bunch of people first to get smarter and understand what you don't know, you don't know. Right. And figure some of that out. But I guess one, one recurring theme I've said is people from bigger companies often have a harder time going to smaller companies with fewer resources and being scrappier. That is, that is one thing we have. Yeah. Seen. Well, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I, I've, I've seen the same thing where they're coming from a company that has been around for a long time and this, XYZ sales process has been proven. Do these 10 steps, you will have success. We're a brand name. The process is already figured out. All the documentation is there. You have all your support organizations and departments around you to be able to do these things. You get to a startup, those, none of that exists. <laughs> it's a fil- figure it out as you go. And it's kind of, you, you're building the, the aircraft while it's trying to take off type of thing. That's right. That's right. And so you're, there's, there's, a, there's a, a range of things that, that you know, you're, you're looking for, and it helps to write them down and, and, and share it. But one thing that's often helpful is, some, is having somebody or a couple of people who have been the, through the process of a company your size to a company 10 times your size and what are the steps they've gone through, ideally a few times. That's one of the advantages of being with somebody who's you know, a venture capitalist, somebody who's advised a range of companies is they have a broader view. So they've seen a few dozen companies and seen some lessons and at least can try to present some of the things to think about that ultimately the entrepreneur has to decide. Again, the entrepreneur often decides, yeah. but the entrepreneur should be hearing different different points of view, not too many. So on the other end, I hate the discussion when somebody says, well, I should listen to everybody. If somebody's got, I should always listen. And you should right. not always listen. You should pick a few select people and use those carefully and use that as part of your own filter. Ideally, ideally the comments that see things a little differently than you, but, but, but are valuable. So you've mentioned advisors and coaches and mentors a couple of times and going through my, my own experience. I mean, I've built a, a number of different companies and one of the things that I'm always asked about, or some of my employees have seen or have said is how do I find these advisors? I, I always hear this advice 
well, go talk to go talk to advisors or go talk to these these mentors who have done it before and get what what is what is your process or how do you how do you tell somebody this is how you find these advisors who have been there before with the notion that I have a feeling you're going to go there is you got to trust them, right? You don't want to take advice from anybody. And if you don't ask, if you're not going to trust them for directions around the corner, you're certainly not going to ask them for directions on how to build your company. Like how do you find or vet these advisors who have, have been, who would be able to help you? Well, I mean, I think there's a number of different ways, but I think one is being in the mix and, you know, going to trade shows, going to conferences, getting involved in trade associations. I think there's a lot of value to just being around people who have relevant experience and also not being afraid to ask and just meet a bunch of people. I think what often happens is that you meet people and then over time you come to understand who you need. And over that time, you come to understand who you need. And then you start to look for a criteria and your criteria changes over time, by the way. So I think one of the things that comes out of this is you may start with advisors and six months, a year, two years, three years, it's time to move on. But ideally you should have a couple of people around you and continue to evolve. And, you know, we certainly have situations where we can help people at a certain level and then, you know, they just take off and they do great and they need people who bring a deeper or better experience than, than we can bring. Yeah. We help guide them along the way. Sometimes we stay with them for multiple years. You know, we're often, we love the fact when somebody's built a business, we've helped it, we've helped sell it, and then they come back and they want their next business and we help advise them as well. Right. But I think there's just people you see in your life and the fabric of what it is. I think there's people who, who have certain industry experience, certain people just have, you know, real life experience because it's so much it's about people and managing emotions managing things that might go on internally and, and, and how to listen and how to get better at stuff. And, and, you know, I'm constantly amazed at how I figure out something and it was, the answer was there and I didn't see it. And then, and then a couple iterations later, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. And sometimes people around can help accelerate that. Yeah. I got this question the other day, should an advisor be someone that you pay or is it just someone that you connect with and, that person, I don't know, pays it forward or says, Hey, I, you know, I've been in your shoes before. Is there, is there a formal, Hey, I want you to be my advisor. Is it implied based on the fact that an advisee is asking for advisors advice and help? Like what, what type of structure is this, these arrangements? It's a very good question. And I think it's, it's more of a kind of what feels right and doesn't. And I think a first conversation should be, in other words, we've seen situations where companies have hired celebrities or people with big brands to be on, to be on their board and they give them a certain token amount of equity or they ask to use their name or whatever. But I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking right. about people that are that provide real advice. And, and I think what typically happens is you can have a couple of conversations and there's a balance between starting off with a, with a formal relationship, which I think is too early, and having too many conversations where you should bring it up. And I think there's ways to solve it. And I think on the earliest stage, it's typically equity, you know, warrants, and it's typically for, you know, over what might be a couple of years invests. And then if somebody's really deeply involved, you know, and we've seen this where they're really providing a lot of value, there might be something more. You know, some kind of, it depends on are they professional consultants and all this, right. that, that they, they do that. You know, we as investment bankers and advisors are, are come from a different place, but there are people that are consultants and, and they get paid by the, by the hour or the month or whatever. And I think, I think those things evolve and ebb and flow. I think that's part of the communication of what you need to do with these trusted people. And, and I think there's a real important thing to be candid and ask. And I think it's really important for the entrepreneur to be more forthcoming and say, you've given me incredible advice here and all this. I want to make sure I'm not taking advantage of anything. Maybe there's a time that I can compensate you with some equity and we can have this relationship evolve. I, I think there's a range of things, but I think it's more incumbent on the entrepreneur to initially ask, get some advice, but if it's frequent that they need to be more forthcoming in offering something. Right. That makes sense. Excellent advice. I think I think a lot of people are going to benefit from that. Just 
I get that question quite a bit is, is what does the structure really look like? Cause I, I'm told to always hot, talk to these smart people, about what, what am I supposed to pay them? Do they, is it just, they're nice or that type of thing. So excellent advice. I want to get into kind of the scale phase. So now we have gone through, we have product market fit. We're starting to hire a couple of people. What are some of the inflection points that you see companies make that either tell them that it's time to scale, tell them that, hey, this is a little bit actually too early to scale and I have to wait until X point? Like, how do you know that it is time to actually scale your business versus being premature? Well, you know, there's, there's also some false starts, but the wonderful thing is when business starts to come in, companies use the product, it's solving a problem, they're using it more. You can see that, that they're fully engaged. You're starting to see other leads come in. There's an acceleration. And then you're saying, it's time to let more people know about this, right? And then that often, you know, the increase in marketing often is correlated with the increase in sales salespeople. So there's some coordinated effort on that. And, you know, in this environment, it, it's a fascinating time because right now valuations are down quite a bit, right? Yet the high flyers are getting as high a valuation as they were a year and a half ago. They're unbelievable. There's more money chasing a few of these real high flyers. And so it's tough to watch because the bifurcation is larger than ever. Right. But I would say that you know, that you'll want to, you'll, you'll get a sense of scale as, as you're seeing companies using a product, liking it and expanding on it. And so it's an interesting question to somebody, suddenly do a whole bunch of people need it? That can well be. We often see companies use it, like it, start to expand, have more people come in. And there's often a discussion of why are they using it? What is it? Why are these people scaling so fast? And then, and then there's a clarity as to who your target customer is and isn't, you know, and, and often it's not obvious. I guess that's the point. We, we had a, one of the companies we founded was a company in computer networks and, and it was a bleeding edge product, meaning when it worked, it was a thing of beauty, but it was glitchy. And so we looked up and we had about a dozen customers after a year, you know, we didn't raise any outside money at this point. And we were looking around and we go, oh God, these companies don't make sense. And suddenly we realized that it was actually divisions, the maverick divisions of very large companies. So startups couldn't afford what we were doing and big companies were too slow, but the maverick divisions, and suddenly we knew that. And then we started to go and find out where the maverick divisions were at the big defense companies, the big finance companies, and this hit. And so then we were able to grow and build because we knew what we were looking for and we, and we had validation, right? I mean, if you look up and you go, doesn't make any sense to me why these four companies are using it or what's the, you know, right. are, I don't see a match. And then suddenly there's a fit around it, then you can. And, and I think that's always what you're looking for. That's why it's always helpful to have more people pattern matching all the time. No, it's interesting because you could, you, you, you could essentially have a lot, a, a large number of customers and you could be fighting tooth and nail for these customers and who knows what your CAC is. But if you're not looking back, maybe you find out that the customers that have the highest revenue or the highest profit are actually how you can, you know, tweak your go-to-market, tweak your scale. You can hire specific people. You can hire in a specific way. Because if all of a sudden you're going after these maverick departments, that changes these other things. It might, it might even change your product development. It might even change your marketing. It changes all kinds of things. But it's interesting when you look back, some of the scale techniques and some of the hiring decisions, go-to-market decisions that you're making, they're not for every single customer. You might have collected all these different customers, but it's the ones that you need to make some bets. And to your point, it comes back to ideal customer profile. Who is the customer and the problems that you're solving? Yes, I think it is. It's who are the customers. I think the big issue is Who's using your product and loving it the most? Yeah. And what's counterintuitive is the customers that love it the most are the customers you should charge the most. And, and so I think that often comes with when we look at companies and we're often valuing companies, we look at companies at companies that have retention. We often break out retention because one thing that can throw off a company is they may have a customer who's not really a good fit for them. They keep paying. So you don't throw them away. 
but you don't pay attention. But the truth is, as you look at a company, who are the companies that love it, need it, use it? And they're the ones that are most likely to be retained and grow and have negative retention, which means that that the same 20 customers a year later are spending more, even if one or two drop out. Right. And I think that that's a very big issue that goes on with a range of, of businesses. And I think you often have to look and say, who is our customer and break out your ideal customers versus others that happen to be your customers. How often are you doing that exercise? Is that like a monthly thing, six months, year? Well, I guess it, it depends on how you yeah. want to look at it, but it certainly should be at least the every year, yeah. if not more. And, 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 and I think the real thing is you need people looking at the usage of the products. It often helps, by the way, that you may untangle value by having a product that you didn't think was valuable, but some companies, some people think it's invaluable. And we've seen it where companies separate some product that certain people will be completely price insensitive to, and they have to pay a lot extra for that. And there's a core product that other people use and, and it makes you think about yeah. why do those other people need that special product? There was a finance company. It was a very it was a highly regulated area. And there was a certain database this company had that wasn't your standard database. And, and they were able to charge, you know, they were having companies that were paying a half a million to, a, to $2 million. And this database, you know, was 99.99%, you know, profit margin. And they just kept increasing the rate on that because they didn't, the other people didn't care else as the percentage. And I think those are things to think about. Which products are completely critical and, and which aren't and for which customers? That's interesting. That's really interesting. When you, cause when you see, when you think of usage, a lot of times I think immediately jump to, you know, SaaS company, you go in, you can see who, how many times they log in, how often they're using it, what features they're using, all those types of things. Are you seeing companies scale before they have all of these kind of metrics in place? Well, scale in the sense that, I mean, scale is a term, right? I mean, it, it, they're continuing to grow. They're reaching out to more people. Ideally, you want to continue to bring in new customers. Of course. Scale means, you know, are you making an extra investment into a certain area? So sure, if you're continuing to grow, I think it's just a very big difference between growing at 10%, growing at 50%, growing at 200%, right? And I think those yeah. are very different sorts of things. Each company is scaling to some degree. When do you go so you scale and you're actually taking bigger losses to get to a certain place, right? And that, that was so rampant in the past, you know, during COVID, you know, after the first six months, I mean, that was what 2021 largely was. Right. Right. And, and I think, you know, there's understanding of where that is, right? I mean, e-commerce was exploding. All these companies that were the picks and shovels for e-commerce were doing incredibly well. So that made reason to scale. And it's hard to know when, when, when it suddenly stops, yeah. slows down. Much well, less, everybody, uh, everybody's feeling that, right? Yeah. Right. That's yeah, interesting. So, 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 you know, scale is one thing. Increase the scaling to what degree, how much. What's the thoughtfulness? What's the incremental gain? And what are you playing for? You know, we, we have seen, and this is an interesting question, where venture capitalists will say, I'd rather accelerate this and have it go off the cliff, right? Because I'd rather have three of my six companies or eight companies make 20X, 50X. And if the other ones fall off, two things. One is, so be it, because it's a numbers game for them. And two, if they're off the cliff, I don't have to spend my time on them because my time is about growing these successful companies. Sure. You know, the joke is I, I as a venture capitalist will return your call in a half hour if your company can return my fund, right? If your company is good <laughs> enough to return my fund, I'll do it instantly. And that's what they should be. So you have to understand that they have different motivations as to how quickly to scale. And that's the healthy relationship because you're, you're all in on one company, yours. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to have to, I haven't heard that one. I'm going to, I'm going to use that. What, what are, what are some of the kind of the missteps that you're seeing companies make that think that it is time to grow? So are you seeing companies have customers, have revenue starting to increase, but are, are they scaling prematurely? Are they scaling incorrectly? Like what are some of the, the missteps that you're seeing companies make? Because you could have the customers, you could have the revenue growing, you can have some really good signals, 
but you could also do it in a very, very poor way. Like what are the things that people are doing that are kind of breaking through and, and having the success? Well, you know, I think one of the things that happens is if you've got customers, they like the product, they're using it. You're going out and new customers are coming and onboarding. I think one of the things that comes is if you scale too fast, then there's often customer service issues that come up. There's often people that can't manage all the change. They're overwhelmed. They're not, they're not, well, they, well, they were trained to do something. They can't do it at a larger scale. You know, and again, you know, growing at 10% isn't hard. Growing at 50% can be a challenge, but often manageable. Growing at 200%, 300%, there's gonna be a lot of missed pieces. How do you manage that? And how do you manage the hiring, the overseeing and things like this? So it's often a question of, of how you decide the, the amount you're gonna scale and what it is. On the other hand, if there's incredible demand, you've hit on something, you don't wanna miss out. And how do you do that? Right. Uh, and then there's often, you know, there was a company that was involved in the car industry that was coming up with a product that was walk in and we will figure out a way that we can rent you any car for any amount of time you want, right? And some of the big companies gave them not 10 million, not a hundred million, but a billion dollars of debt, mostly debt and some equity to scale the business. They look up and go, how are we going to do this? So they bought companies for the talent, right? And you know, it's a hard thing to make that all happen at once. And yet the demand was there, but it would turn out to be a lot more complicated, by the way, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, to, to figure out what the demand is, how to price it right and have other issues and contingencies. Sure. It was, you know, it was a bold idea and people were putting a lot of capital at, at risk. So, so it depends, you know, and obviously if a company's, again, you know, if a company's been around for several years and has a foundation, which is what many of these companies are that have been have gotten some funding, but not rocket funding. It's a different story. And it's also a different story when somebody's been an entrepreneur, is truly a great entrepreneur and has scaled a couple of businesses before. Right? Those are all different things. What you know, what people love is somebody comes in and they go, I'm bringing my team, right? I've got my team of eight people here. We're ready to go. We've done this before. We're ready to do it now. Like, oh, that's so here's what you've done. You watch the systems in place. You watch some coordinates. It's like a, it's choreographed. It's beautiful. And it's uncommon. Right. That is uncommon. It's hard to be able to get all those people as, as well. What, what are, what are specifically to sales? Are you seeing things that companies are doing that helps them break through or, or maybe there's some pitfalls that, that you see pretty consistently? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think there's a number of different ways that, that people look to sell and market and evaluate. And companies that have too much money burn too much. Companies that, you know, and, and sometimes, by the way, if you have all the money, there, there's a balance between what we see as the companies is, here's how much you need, here's a buffer, and here's some money to try one or two initiatives. Walk through the 10 initiatives. Let's sit down and talk about which ones are likely, right. most likely, right? It's tempting when you have a lot of money to do more than one or two initiatives. It's tempting to put a lot more money in and it's tempting sometimes to say it didn't work here, but let's put more and we'll try it. So what, you know, I see often the opposite is sometimes companies are good companies and they should spend a little bit more to scale and they don't, they figured something out. Somehow they were growing at 20%. Now they're growing at 80%. That's a good indication. Why? Mm -hmm. What happened? Nothing's changed. Well, maybe it's a chance to scale it more because the market's telling you you're ready. Right. So how do you, you read know, that? Is that a, is that, is that metrics? Is that a feel for the market? Like that's, that's tough. Well, again, I would say the biggest thing that comes out of this is often the key executives being in touch with the market yeah. and their customers. So it's existing customers, new customers, and also customers that left that you think shouldn't have left. That takes time. And I think yeah. I think as the company gets bigger, it gets harder to do that. And so the great entrepreneurs that I know are ones that intuitively know they need to stay in touch with customers. They take existing customers out for lunch, dinner, go to conferences, meet a lot of people, stop and ask people, you know, and conferences and events are one of the best. I mean, I know that you, you run a conference, so it's, it's a great way for you and, and your team to be able yeah. to stay in, in what's going on in the market. But. I, one of the things that's funny because 
COVID, COVID took away a lot of that in person for so long. And now that it's back, you know, that that's wonderful to see, but it's, it's interesting to see how many founders, at least in my business and curious in what you see, like founders, they, they almost want to get out of sales as fast as they possibly can. I want to hire this sales leader. You know, we have a bunch of customers. We have, we have revenue. All I need to do is hire this sales leader and now I can go do all the other stuff that I've been wanting to do. And then maybe it's fundraise or product or what, you know, whatever it is or engineering. But it, it's interesting to your point where it's no matter what happens, you have to keep your pulse on your customers and on your market. Conferences are a great way, but, you know, taking, taking customers out, prospects even out, that type of thing. It's interesting. Are you, are you seeing like a, 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 sh a shift towards founders staying involved in sales? Cause that, I've seen, especially through COVID, I saw founders leaving, like trying to get away as fast as they could and just saying, Hey, let's just hire these people to do it. Well, I, I guess it depends on who they are. If they're technical founders and introverts, absolutely. Yeah. The sooner they can. And often there's, there's people often when they hit a big hit, they're not as focused as they used to be. It's really finance people that are the founders. <laughs> Sometimes it's, you know, it's product people. So it's not just technical, but I guess product. And, and those people sometimes get away from the customer at some level. And then it is true sometimes that people want to be an evangelist over time. And that's a broader role. No, I, I, but, but I think it's a reminder, but I think, I think there's a fair number of, of entrepreneurs that are salespeople by nature, as you talked about and said, they, they need to be great recruiters. They, that, that just means they need to be good in sales. And the best ones are the ones that have to do that. You know, I, I remember years ago, a friend of mine was called by Steve Ballmer when he was running Microsoft. It's like, oh my God, you run a small value-added reseller business. Why is he calling you? You know, he just says he wants to stay in touch. So I love that this guy that's running one of, one of the greatest creation companies of all time knows that he needs to stay in touch with a few of the smaller people to get a pulse on what's going on in the market. But trade shows, what you're saying, and now that people are doing them in person, is a way on steroids to reach a lot of people. And I think it's really doing it efficiently. And that's why going to especially specific industry trade shows is so valuable, but also just going out now, because so much of us have gotten used to being Zoom yeah. and being isolated, going out to conferences that are local that are about new ideas, meeting new people, new opportunities. It's, it's really, I think a lot of us need to do that. And I think that that's going to come back to hurt people that don't make a conscious effort. No, I, I completely agree. And it's, it's one of the best ways to, to really scale and stay in touch. Completely agree. Peter, this has been awesome. You are a wealth of information. We're going to have to have you on again. I got a, I got a, a one more question for you and then we can, we can kind of wrap some things up. Any, any book or any resource that you recommend for the audience as far as around getting through kind of product market fit into scale, through scale, like any, any resources or books that you'd recommend? Well, obviously, one book that I think is a terrific book, or the whole concept is The Lean Startup. And I think that these days, that's, that's a terrific book. I'm a big fan of Scott Galloway. And I think he has a range of, he's got a podcast, he's written several books, and he's somebody that's been an entrepreneur multiple ways. And I think he's got a good way of being very candid. And, and I think that's valuable. You know, I always am a big believer also, people should always be learning and always, and always reading and learning not only about your business, but other businesses as well. Yeah. And so I, I also like the idea of just, you know, reading biographies, whether it was Jeff Bezos's biography whether it was, you know, the Nike founder. And, and I think there's just constantly reading those things. But, but as far as what it is to launch a startup, I think today has never been a better time. There's never been a better time than today to be an entrepreneur. And a bit of a recession gives you, I think, some advantages to start. Okay. But you can launch businesses so relatively inexpensively and get feedback on it to help grow it. Not that it's easier, just that you can you can do it with less resources than you ever could. Absolutely. Certainly not easier, but definitely doesn't cost as much upfront. Tell us about your conference. What are the dates? Where, where can we learn a little bit more? Sure. Well, you know, one of the things we've taken a great joy out of is opening up to the community and creating, creating events. And, you know, what we discovered 
you know, eight, nine years ago is we go up to Dreamforce, which was Salesforce's big presentation, and 150,000 people are up there, and they're all talking about SaaS and recurring revenue. We come and we leave Northern California, 150,000 people, that's a lot of people. We come back and we're talking about recurring revenue, retention, and it seemed like the rest of the country didn't know what was going on. So we created the Recurring Revenue Conference. It's in Los Angeles. It's kind of a hub for probably the largest SoCal-centric tech conference. I expect about 800 people. And it's we bring a lot of thought leaders, people that have been very successful. And we've also had great luck in bringing people in who were successful and have become ultra successful, but also a lot of people who are very articulate and thoughtful about what's going on. And as the industry has grown, more sophistication has happened. So it's April 27th. It's the recurrent, by the way, it's at the Hilton Culver City, but it's also, if you look up www.recurringrevenueconference.com, you'll see that all the activity and information and we're adding, we're starting to add the speakers now, but it's a great day to understand a lot if you're interested in learning about scaling a business and meeting some of the brightest people. Both, we found some of the attendees are remarkably successful people or have gone on to be very successful. And the speakers have been great. So Wonderful. recommend that we'll, you- uh, we'll, link to, yeah, we'll link it to uh, the show notes as well. And if anybody, if you're looking for advising or mentoring, talk to Peter, talk to Sutton Capital Partners. They advise, they mentor, they do M&A for niche-centric SaaS companies between three and 25 million in ARR. It is, you guys are awesome. Last question, how do people get a hold of you? How do, how do they get more of you? LinkedIn, Twitter, newsletter, how do they get a hold of you? you? Know, well, we're, we're, we are going to do a lot more proactive marketing, but we've, we have a fair number of people that reach out from, from our friends and colleagues. We've obviously got a chance to meet people from across the country and even around the world. But please reach out either via LinkedIn or, or PC at SuttonCapitalPartners.com. Go to our site, SuttonCapitalPartners.com, or go to the RecurringRevenueConference.com, and you know, we can get a hold of, of me as well. Awesome. So thank you very much. Thanks so much, Peter. We'll have to have you on again. This is awesome. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.